One of the things that makes you actually fast as an engineer is your ability to prioritize. Like it's your ability to not get rabbit holed into spending three hours fixing some kind of unnecessary to fix config file or gold plating something or, or a thing that makes great engineers great, honestly, is they Google really well, or they're extremely savvy at using Stack Overflow to get the answer that they need. You're not going to have an interview process step where you say, Google the answer for this thing. I'm going to like that. That's ridiculous. But if you have someone build a real feature and you get out of the way, then all of these little things that go into being a really good engineer, building high quality features fast, all that stuff will get captured and tested and evaluated. I'm Dan Robinson, CTO at Heat. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Dan Robinson built the data infrastructure to answer your deepest product questions. All this and more on Code Story. At 18 years old, Dan Robinson was 100% convinced that he was going to be a mathematician. He went to college at Stanford, and when he got there, he realized that math beyond high school was very different, and as such, he didn't want to make that his day job. He always enjoyed making stuff, specifically with computers, and he started leaning into computer science and deep learning projects. He loves to hike, be outside with his friends, Recently, he has gotten addicted to chess online, though he claims he's not any good at it. And so addicted that he had to give his close friend his account password to keep him accountable. Dan is originally from Boston, which is his excuse for being direct. In fact, he finds it so strange that people don't interrupt others more in the Bay Area. Previously, the CEO of Dan's current venture was a PM at Facebook. And he couldn't get basic answers to how people use the platform. Similar problems were popping up for Dan at Palantir, causing long cycles just to get a single question answered. They both were thinking, there has to be a better way. This is the creation story of Heap. Heap builds product analytics software that product managers, digital insights teams, marketers, analysts, etc. use to try to make their products better. So uh, they use it to try to understand what makes their users successful, how to make more users successful, answer questions about, you know, what features are key aspects of the user journey that are causing friction, whatever it may be. And then in other cases, they'll use data in Heap to power interventions into those journeys. The idea of Heap or the way it's, it's fundamentally different from the half a dozen other SaaS tools that exist to give you data about your users is that we make the problem of getting the data you need 10x easier. Like you can think of Heap as similar to other analytics tools, except rather than requiring you to write all this instrumentation code and track the things that your users do, Heap also automatically captures a broad set of, of user behavior. So for example, every click and every page view and all these taps and swipes and stuff on mobile. And the reason that's really important is that if you're asking a question as a product manager or an analyst or something, if you're asking a question about your users and you don't happen to have the relevant data that you need to answer it, in every other tool, you're now stuck because you have to go file a ticket, get an engineer to write some, you know, one line of tracking code, wait for that code to ship, wait for the data to accumulate, all of that. And, you know, best case, it's going to be two weeks before you have a real answer to your question. And in a lot of companies, it's going to be six months before you have an answer. 
This is particularly important if you're trying to pursue what I would call actual insight. Like if you just want a product analytics tool that you can use as a scoreboard to track a KPI that's moving over time, you can use any tool, they'll all be fine. Or you can just pipe your data directly to a warehouse and you know run any BI tool. Like you're just tracking a line moving up and down. But if you want to use a tool to actually discover something you didn't know about your users, like figure out where the most important leverage point to invest in in your onboarding flow is, or what the predictors of churn are for your customers or something like that. If you want to find actual insights, it's an iterative process. So you need to be able to ask a question, have an idea, ask a new question, ask a new question, repeat that loop six times, 10 times, 15 times before you learn something really important. If that loop takes two weeks or six weeks or months or something, you'll really never get there. But the idea of Heap is because we're already tracking everything your users are doing. You can ask a question, the data's already there. You can ask a new question five minutes later, repeat, repeat, repeat. And by the end of the afternoon, you've learned something really powerful. Uh, in, in terms of how I've gotten here, it's actually kind of interesting. So our CEO, Mateen, was, uh, when, we, when we were fresh out of college, was a PM at Facebook. You know, Facebook has this incredibly advanced data infrastructure and he couldn't get answers to basic questions. And it was because of this basic problem of, I want to, I want to ask a question. I now need to get someone to track this thing. And these inability to answer these questions was, was a significant constraint on his ability to make good decisions as a PM. Like, I think, I think I remember one example where he wanted to know how many people scroll up in their message or how frequently people scroll up in their messages and find and read old messages, which is kind of important. If you're designing that UX flow, you need to know if that's something that needs for, you know, how, how, how much primacy that needs. He couldn't get an answer to that, like such a simple question. And uh, I was working at Palantir at the time and I was adjacent to someone who was trying to solve really similar basic questions about what made Palantir customers successful. Like what are people doing in the Palantir product that makes their deployment successful and makes the user base grow or makes them unsuccessful? You know, it was a, it was a six week iterative loop to get an answer to these questions. Like they would ask a question like, uh, you know, I, I wonder if, you know, using such and such feature in your first couple weeks as an analyst is a predictor for whether your teammates will end up using the thing, uh, which is important to know because that means that you, that, that determines how you do onboarding and how you train users and what product investments you make. The, the loop was six weeks long. They would get an answer six weeks later. And then these people were incredibly smart within literally five minutes, they would have a dozen follow-up questions because they would get a number back that was weird and then they'd say oh okay i i, I want to ask these five follow-up questions to figure out if the number was wrong or if actually there's something important to be learned here or they would get a number back that uh, gave them a, a negative result where something wasn't as useful as they thought now they have t 10 other ideas that they want to try if, if this were an infomercial this would be the part where it's black and white and someone says there's got to be a better way because this is ridiculous like this is this is no way to answer questions there's this unbelievable bottleneck on our ability to get insight value based uh, and, and the bottleneck is having the data you need to get it and it seemed like everyone else was focusing on more widgets to slice and dice the data they have differently and the way we saw it the problem wasn't you know graphing tools that didn't have enough widgets the problem was that i'm trying to graph a basic thing and i don't have it tell me about the mvp tell me about that first product that first product that was built, how long it took to build, and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life? If you're a user of Heap, the critical loop for us to make really easy for single player Heap to be successful, I mean, I mean, a single PM who has this thing running on their product and they want to get any value out of it, is they need to be able to get the data they need, express a question, get an answer, interpret the answer. And there's a kind of interesting wrinkle in there, which is that in every other tool, 
the data gets meaning via the way you track it. Like you write a line of tracking code that says that such and such a user did the add to cart event or such and such user did the sign up event or something like that. Heap doesn't necessarily work that way because the whole auto capture approach means we're capturing every click or every page view or every form field edit or something like that. But those things don't have semantic meaning. They're just a click on, on a button that happens to have some CSS or a view on a page that happens to have some URL. There, there's, no, there, there's no semantic meaning in it though. Like it's, there, there's nothing connecting it to add to cart yet. yet. So in Heap, the way you bridge this is you do what's what's called creating a definition or a virtual event, where we have a visual way to do this, where you click a button in your own product and you say, this is an add to cart, or this button is the sign up, or this page is the documentation for the such and such feature or something like that. And then we retroactively apply that label or that tag to all the events we've automatically captured. And that's, that's how you, as a typical PM who wants to do analysis in this stuff in human terms, as opposed to in terms of like clicks on CSS or something like that, that's how you interpret this data and make it useful. The critical missing piece for us that I think completed the MVP was when we first ship a, shipped a visual way to create those definitions. Previously, you could like type in some stuff, like you could say a click on a certain amount on a certain CSS selector with like a regex or something was an add to cart and you know we would say like look just go into just just go into the dom and find the css that describes your event or something like that and the answer is most pms can't do that most people can't do that it's not that that's it was really hard to be confident you were looking at the right thing i don't know that it, it was a minimum product that was not viable and the telltale sign is that we put we posted the initial product on hacker news and we got like five thousand signups immediately uh, there were two problems. One was that we didn't have the infrastructure at all to support that scale. So problem number one was like, oh my God, we've got to scale this thing up a thousand X beyond where we are now. But problem number two was that people would, uh, we would let people off that waiting list and then they would poke around in it and they wouldn't really get success. And they wouldn't continue paying us. So that's the telltale sign that you've struck on a real problem and you can get people to use your tool or to at least try it, but you don't actually have a viable solution to the problem. Around about eight months later, when we had a first version of that visualizer out, that was when we started getting actually successful users, uh, you know, re recurring payment, all the all the basic signs of initial initial product market fit. But honestly, there's been a lot of iterations since then, and I think it's better to think of I, I, one one of our sort of theses as a company is that product market fit is a scalar, not a binary. It's not an all or nothing thing. You have weak product market fit, you have strong product market fit. And part of what we intend to do is turn that into a science and, and make it make it the case that you can iterate on your product market fit in a way more scientific way than than you can right now, which is like, uh, I don't know, does the business feel like it has pull or something like that? It's a totally gut driven, non-scientific. So once we completed that loop, we had something that I think was viable. And then there was there was a lot of other part. There was a lot of other important iterations since then. Um, a lot of which has also come around the, the underlying data infrastructure and uh, like the ability to serve this product to customers doing millions of sessions a month and then tens of millions of sessions a month and then hundreds of millions. So before we move off from the MVP, you know, in, in building an MVP, you got to you know make certain decisions and trade offs of what you can make in the short term, how you offer it to people. You mentioned the waiting list. You mentioned people jumping in and using the product. Dive in a little more to those decisions and trade offs that you had to make in the short term as far as, you know, feature limitation, technical debt, things like that. And how did you cope with those? Well, I don't know. This might, this might feel kind of like a non-answer. I don't know if there was any particularly strong system per se, 
I don't really think there was that much coping either. I mean, we were we were in a market where Mixpanel already existed, and then there were very mature marketing analytics tools that people used to do product stuff. Of course, at every like every day, we were making painful cuts around features that were valuable. I certainly didn't perceive that much coping to be done per se. We just like you only control what you control, and you have to do what you think is best at the time. The same is true of, from a technical point of view. I mean, uh, I mean, even to this day, we wrestle with how much investment in the technical foundations is correct. What is how much should we discount the future? How much? It's, it's extremely painful to make cuts to things we think could improve edge velocity or could improve the agility of our engineering team or our code base or something like that. Uh, but likewise, it's extremely painful to make cuts to features that we think we really need yesterday if we're going to win as a business. And, and, and by the way, I don't, I don't know that we necessarily have navigated this all that spectacularly either. So you shouldn't interpret my answer as, as wisdom. You should interpret it as, uh, well, we tried to do what we think was best. And I don't know if we even did it that well. <laughs> no, I love that. Actually, that's a very human answer. And that's what I'm looking for. You know, we did it. We did it. We evaluated the problems as we as we ran into them. Maybe not decisions and trade-offs. It sounds like there were some products out there that had people licking their chops, that people were already using. They understood the, the market. But there's not a formula for how to go about cutting features or taking on debt. Is that is that I hear you saying? Yeah, I, I would I would say in terms of mistakes we made around deciding what to work on and what not to work on, by far the biggest ones were overthinking the market. We're having some kind of thesis around where the market was going or what our users should want and leaning too hard into that and not leaning hard enough into just doing the thing that people ask for. Like, I think the whole people will just ask for faster horses thing is an absolute canard. And 95% of the time, you should just build faster horses. <laughs> you shouldn't let your users or your customers spec out solutions for you. But anytime you aren't letting your users dominate your roadmap in terms of what problems you're trying to solve, I think you're taking an enormous risk. And, and we've, we made mistakes there where we were an X business and we wanted to become a Y business or we were an X business and we had a strong thesis about the market becoming a Y market and uh, we wanted to push really hard in, in some kind of other direction. All of the biggest mistakes we made were of, of the shape of not listening and, and doing the thing we thought. All, all the mistakes we made were around building cars instead of what we should have been doing, which was just building faster horses. Well, then let's move on into kind of product progression, maturation. So how have you gone about progressing the product? And, and I'm interested in how you went about a little more detailed, how you went about building your roadmap and figuring out what was the next most important thing to build. And this is more into the iterations you were mentioning earlier. We, we have a system right now that I'm really happy with that, that actually works surprisingly well. You can kind of think of it as analogous to rapid prototyping, but for your whole company. So when you rapid prototype a UI, you might build a paper mockup and then show it to a user and see how a user interacts with it and use that to get feedback before you go and build out an actual code demo. And we have a system that sort of approximates that, but at the company level. So um, instead of a paper prototype of a UI, we have what we call a business blueprint, which is one or two page summary of the most important hypotheses of the business. like what the problem we solve is, who has the problem, how we solve the problem, ways we do it in a differentiated way, how we support our customers, how much they pay for it, all of the basic, most fundamental axioms of the business. And then we turn that blueprint into a mock selling process where we try to simulate as closely as possible 
what it will be like to sell the product we will be and the company we will be a year from now today and get as much feedback as we can before we go and spend a whole year building that product, building that servicing machine, building that marketing position, all of the things we would invest in to become that company we think will be. There's a million details on how to execute this process well, and it's um, we, we should write a book about this. But uh, there's, a, there's a million details, I think, in how to do this really well, but that basic idea has served us incredibly well. It The, the most important parts of it all came from our COO who, who sort of invented this process and brought it from a past life. And the most important problems to solve for your customer just fall out clear as day. You'll try to sell this wonderful product that we're very excited about building in a mock setting, but in, in a mock but realistic setting with, a, with an existing customer or with a prospect or something else. And you will get very clear feedback that either your way of presenting it or the features you built aren't quite right, don't quite land, or your way of communicating them doesn't quite work. And, uh, you know, you can do one week of intense iteration on that and move your thinking forward six months. So how did you build your team? And, you know, what I'm, what I'm interested in is, you know, what did you look for in these people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? I can tell you what we did. I, I can also tell you about some parts that uh, we don't do it the same way anymore. So certainly for the early engineering team, we really aggressively prioritized abil ability to independently execute as, as sort of a fundamental axiom or a fundamental piece of, of talent strategy or hiring strategy. We've always tried to design interview processes that are as emulative of the job as possible. So our original engineering interview on site was here's some basic starter code and it's on an EC2 instance and here's a readme and we'll have a really quick conversation describing the feature we are trying to build here and then we'll get out of your way for the day like we'll check in every couple hours but mostly we'll just get out of the day and then you'll demo it to us at the end of the day so like what what we would learn from that is can you totally independently execute a thing which does kind of map to how we operated early days i don't we don't operate that way anymore and, and i think in retrospect, it probably was a mistake. We over-indexed in this, like we over-indexed on independent execution, ability to run with something on your own. We under-indexed on ability to communicate, for example, which isn't really expressing, isn't really covered that well there. One thing that this did really well was it, it illuminated your speed at building software because I think it's just a much more direct representation of the problem of building a real piece of software than sitting around a whiteboard or, or talking about an algorithm or any kind of thing like that. It's as close to building a real feature as you can get. One of the reasons these kinds of things work so well is that they capture all of the unknown unknowns that go into speed. Like one of the things that makes you actually fast as an engineer is your ability to prioritize. Like it's your ability to not get rabbit holed into spending three hours fixing some kind of unnecessary to fix config file or gold plating something or or a thing that makes great engineers great. Honestly, uh, it, it is or one thing that makes great engineers great, honestly, is they Google really well, or they're extremely savvy at using Stack Overflow to get the answer that they need. Like, you're not gonna have an interview process step where you say, Google the answer for this thing. I'm gonna, like, that. that's ridiculous. But um, but uh, if you have someone build a real feature and you get out of the way, then all of these little things that go into being a really good engineer, um, uh, and by, where by good engineer, I actually mean building high quality features fast in a semi-independent setting, like the one that we had in the early days of Heap, all that stuff will get captured and tested and evaluated. Our, our working style has evolved as we've grown and also just as we learned more. Um, and, you know, likewise, our, our interview process, you know, evolves to match. Like, it should be emulative of the job and the job has evolved. I can also say another, another part of building the team has been, we, we always 
placed a really strong premium on, uh, you know, in, intelligence and, and truth-seekingness. And we, we, we did just always keep what we thought to be a very high bar. And this, this is a thing a lot of people talk about, but it has severe costs and that it meant we were slower to hire than we probably, than we probably should have been. I mean, if, if I were to do it over, there's a lot of things I'd be looking for that are different. Well, we'd be operating differently in early stages, but we'd be looking for different things too. And also, uh, you know, the, the cost of that lack of speed is pretty enormous because that's, I mean, every, everything compounds and you're missing out on the feature that gets pushed back a couple months because you don't hire an engineer to build it uh, means less, less customers using the thing, which means less learning. It also means less revenue, which also means less hiring future engineers. Like it just pushes back the whole growth arc of the business. So I'm not saying we would hire sloppily or something like that, but we probably pushed the dial a little. We, we probably didn't take enough risks. Well, let's flip to scalability then. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or were you fighting this as you grew? We definitely uh, built the plane in flight. And I, I would argue that that's the correct thing to do for almost all startups because the the dominant risk of your failure even for a company like Heap, your dominant risk of failure is is product, not technology. The dominant risk is that um, your thing isn't actually as valuable as you think it is. Your solution isn't actually as complete as you think it is. People won't pay for it. It's not as differentiated as you think it is from competitors, something like that. I think a company like Heap has more technical risk. Actually, part of why I joined was that I thought it just had much higher ratio of technical risk to product risk, and that appealed to me a bit more as a, as a, as a technologist. But your most likely reason of failing isn't that you can't scale the thing you have. Your most likely reason of failing is that the thing you have isn't something people want or are willing to pay for. So we aggressively erred on the side of we got to get something in front of people and then we'll pay off the costs that come from that over over the over years. I mean, you know, there's there's two, I don't know if you've ever heard the saying there's two kinds of companies, the ones where people complain about the technical debt and the ones that never launched or something like that or uh, you know, you, you either die a pristine code base or you live long enough to see yourself become successful or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, we, we definitely built it in flight uh, from, you know, from the data system up. But 2015 and 2016 were a rough year for me. Let's, let's say I think there's, there's a lot of pain to go through then. We're at a point right now where we're still making really aggressive investments in the fundamental technology, the basic scalability of it, the basic performance characteristics, all that stuff. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all you've built at Heap, what are you most proud of? I guess I'm, I'm not really in a lookout over my balcony and admire my my works ye mighty type of a mood or or phase yet. I, I don't look at Heap as like the after picture. I look at Heap as a before picture still. And I think we're like 3% done with what we really, with with what I intend for us to do. I think we're building one of the most important pieces of software that's going to exist over the next 15 years because we're moving to a world where all commerce is intermediated via a digital product of some kind, a website or an app. And all commerce is becoming, or all companies are becoming differentiated via their digital product. That's part of all companies' differentiation right now and part of how they compete. And we're building the fundamental um, the fundamental technology people will use to figure out how to make their products better. We will eventually touch every aspect of how, how product managers make their products better from the aspects of their product that are run by behavioral data in heap, the basic orientation around what, what direction do I build in? Is this improving? What, everything a product manager does will live in heap and a product manager is rapidly becoming the most one of the most important roles in a company. 
mean, this, this wasn't even a role that really existed 15, 20 years ago outside of, outside of tech. And it's, you know, one of the fastest growing roles in the company. It's like the new default role for Harvard Business School grads to go into whatever Salesforce is to sales. Like the, the thing that Salesforce is to sales, where it's the fundamental data hub that drives the entire, entire business function, we will be that for products. So, uh, you know, where we are now is 3% of that vision or, or 2% or something like that. So, um, so uh, I'm still in the basement hacking. I'm not on the balcony, you know, drinking a glass of wine or something like that. I, but I, I can say one thing I'm pretty proud of is the team that we've built and the culture that's emerged around it. There, there's just an, an embarrassment of really smart, really effective, hardworking, kind, well-intentioned, thoughtful people. I mean, your, your culture is like your product in the sense that it's never done. It always has rough edges. It always has stuff you can improve, all, all of that. Um, but there are aspects, I guess there are features of this culture product that I'm that I'm really proud of and excited about, like um, the general degree of selflessness and, and the degree to which everyone is globally optimizing and just trying to do the right thing for, for, for the team is, is just wild. Like, like our post-mortem culture is, is so cool. It's so, it's, it's truly blameless. Like it's, it's like, a, it's like an advertisement for a good post-mortem. Like I'll sit in up on a post-mortem sometime and like, there's not even any real notion of who screwed up or whose fault it was. It's just a group of smart people trying to figure out, okay, what happened? What factors increased the risk of this happening? What factors increased the severity of the thing happening once it happened? And what do we do to mitigate all of those things for the future? All right, we're good. That's it. An anecdote that just kind of stuck out to me was that we reorganized our engineering team about nine months ago. And as part of that, we had all of the engineering management team around a whiteboard sort of mapping out what the new team structure should look like and what the boundaries are and who should be responsible for what and who needs to own what and all that. And someone pointed out to me afterwards that, you, you know, if you were just a fly on the wall and you didn't know who currently manages what team, you would have no idea from that conversation. You would expect that conversation to be so riddled with it's literally a discussion of turf you're literally deciding like whose whose teams will own what stuff and be responsible for what and what their relative sizes will be it's the conversation which i would most expect personal ambition or or, or principal agent problems to cause people to operate in a way that's not globally that's not that's not best for the whole team they were right like you couldn't even really tell from the conversation who would benefit from anything or whose team does what and that just made me proud and the fact, like I didn't even notice that like, it's, it's just like kind of what we've come to expect. Well, let's flip the script a little bit then. Tell me about a mistake that you made and how you and your team responded to it. Oh, I mean, tons. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's been a long eight years. I think all of our biggest mistakes um, building and scaling the company were around overthinking the market or overthinking what the customer wanted instead of just doing the thing that customers want. Like people will tell you if you just ask people what, if you just ask, if Henry Ford just asked people what they wanted, then they would have said build faster horses and would never would have invented the automobile. 95% of the time, just build faster horses. Like we, we erred on the side of trying to invent the automobile when people were asking for just faster horses. And it led to all the mistakes we made or all the biggest mistakes we made from a product point of view were um, around overthinking instead of listening. Like, I'm not saying you should let your customers spec out your features or spec out specifics of what you build, but the problem that you're choosing to solve at any given time should be deeply anchored into whatever your users are complaining about the most. And if you're going to diverge from that and build towards solving any kind of different problem, 
there should be a really good reason. And we made a lot of mistakes around t taking shots at things that really people weren't asking for to the degree that they were asking for other stuff. And that set us back quite a bit. So what does the future look like for your product and for your team? Well, a couple of things. I mean, from, from a team point of view, we're we're hiring aggressively for like two dozen different roles or something like that. So if you're interested in working on this kind of problem, Lord knows we are hiring. As for the product, we're moving in a couple interesting directions. One is making it dramatically easier for you to get, for you as a product manager to get insight value out of the tool, like to learn something actually important or valuable. And, you know, you could think of the product we have right now as being similar to other product analytics tools, but it has this 10x lever against the problem of getting the data you need to answer a question. And we see an opportunity to build a comparably valuable or comparably powerful 10x lever against the problem of getting insight value or learning something from the data that's already in Heap. And in particular, the thing I'm excited about is there's an opportunity here to build a truly proactive analytics product that to this point really doesn't exist. Um, and I would argue can't exist until something like Heap comes along. And the reason is that we're building on this foundation of automatic data capture. Like we're building a product on a foundation where we know everything your users are doing. And that means that we'll be able to actually succeed at meeting you where you are with a business question in a way that no other product will. Like right now you use all of these tools in a, in a pretty similar way at a high level, which is to say, you have a question, you turn that into a query in some kind of query builder, you get a visualization, you interpret the visualization, you try to learn something from it, you repeat, you run a new query. It's the same in Heap as it is in other tools. In, in Heap, it has this magical quality that you won't get blocked on not having data, but the fundamental mechanism of, of asking questions and gaining insight is the same. And what we're building is something much more proactive where by proactive, what we're building is a product experience that is massive, that is going to be massively more proactive. And by proactive, I mean, we should be able to tell you some stuff that is important for you to know or important for you to look into. Like you should be able to tell Heap, I'm interested in reducing churn or improving account health or improving conversion through a particular flow or improving engagement or some kind of thing like that. And we should be able to tell you, here are seven interesting things that are friction points in your, uh, that are that are causing users to drop off from your funnel. Or here are some really promising leads for things users really need to do in their first couple sessions if you want them to be long-term engaged. Or here are the negative kinds of interactions or negative kinds of experiences customers are having that are causing long-time engaged users to become disengaged or things like that. It is only possible to do that because we're starting from this foundation of automatic data capture. And put another way, we are the only tool that has your unknown unknowns in it. Because almost by definition, if you thought to track something, it is a known unknown in some way. So Heap is the only tool that has the, the places you weren't even looking, which in all of our direct work with customers, it, it's always where the most interesting stuff is. That's an axis I'm really excited about. There are quite a few others. Another is the word scale applied along 20 different axes, scaling to future, future websites, but also scaling to bigger product teams, making it possible to keep technology to better support customers who have thousands of PMs in this tool every day, creating reports, running queries, uh, you know, defining events, creating definitions, updating the data set all the time, keeping that organized, keeping that um, awesome at scale. We, we already have the best features for handling this kind of thing, and, and we just see way more opportunity there. And a third would be that we believe what we're building is at the center of a suite of tools that product managers use on a day-to-day -day basis. And there's a ton of value we can create by making it making these tools work together seamlessly. Like, for, for example, you should be able to detect in heap 
that users who use a certain feature within their first week of being active are significantly more likely to be retained in six months or to be successful long-term. You should be able to use that insight really easily to power, for example, a guide where when users come to your product and they are, they're approaching one week and they haven't used that feature yet, you get a little popover that's like, hey, did you know this is here? This is kind of important. Or when users use your product and don't use that feature and don't come back, you should be able to send a re-engagement email to the effect of, uh, hey, did you know about this thing? There's a, there's a million workflows you could power with this thing, proactively alerting your customer success team to reach out to a customer that we've detected in heap is at risk of churn and the list goes on and on and on. And uh, so th that's just a, a third way in which the product a year from now will be a lot more powerful than it is now. Let's switch to you. Who influences the way that you work? Name a CEO, CTO, architect, really any person that you look up to and why. You're probably not looking for, uh, you know, Jon Snow, the guy who used provocative data visualization to prove that the last major London cholera epidemic came from a particularly bad water pump. I'll give you an answer that's at all in our orbit. Um, I, I've, I've been really lucky to work with a lot of incredibly talented people who have influenced me a lot, both as a, in, in my work and in my life. Um, I worked with some really great engineering leaders at Palantir and just general uh, leaders there. I, I feel like I learned a lot from observing them and getting to work with them. And likewise at Heap, we've just, uh, like I said, we've been able to work with a, an embarrassing sequence of really talented people. The amount I've just been able to osmotically ab absorb by observing them and sort of, I frequently will ask myself, you know, how would so-and-so solve this problem? And that's kind of a, should give you a sense of the degree to which these people influence me. I mean, like the, the um, you know, Ravi and Mateen, our founders, Ken, our COO, Crick's our old product lead, uh, you know, Dorian, our, other, our old engineering lead. I've learned from a ton of really smart people. In terms of people more broadly in tech that I haven't gotten to work with, I mean, there's certainly a lot of people I admire. Diane Green would be one. I mean, the, the, the impact she has personally had on virtualization, eating all of software in the cloud, or the, the impact she's personally had by creating VMware and running Google Cloud on the cloud eating software is just incredibly cool. And like as a technologist, that's something I'd certainly aspire to. Or Mary Lou Jepsen would be another really cool person who's just had such an incredibly varied career of, of impactful, cool, path-breaking work. Another would be Brendan Gregg. The thing I think is so cool about his work is that it systematizes performance engineering. Like a lot of the way people solve performance engineering problems kind of resembles a fishing expedition. Like something is slow and they go and poke at it and like try stuff. And then eventually it, they, they deliver a win or they don't. He, and he's developed and popularized this whole system around turning it into a completely methodical, you know, you turn the crank, you follow the rules, you follow the steps, and you will produce, you will find the bottleneck, and then you will, you will, from there, it's that's 90% of the work, and you'll, you'll solve the problem. That's really cool. Like, he's, he's turned an aspect of engineering that was done with a lot of intuition and gut, but is so, so important. Like, there are 10x wins to be found in software all the time, and that translates into huge differences in user experience or, or dollars spent on computer or something else. And to be able to systematize that and turn it into a science, so, so cool. Uh, and it's actually kind of analogous to what we hope to do at Heap with the problem of building products and finding product market fit. Like, right now you get lucky or you have some kind of like, you know, guru-esque person. And we actually think, we think that art can be complemented by way more science and, and like way more um, method. And that's kind of what we want to create here. 
So we talked about mistakes earlier, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? From a team point of view, we placed a really strong premium early on around working asynchronously and independently. And there's a lot of value in that, especially it, like it, it has set us up really well for this, you know, remote first remote only COVID world where, where, where everyone is de facto remote. We've been, we've been operating in a very remote, we've been operating actually with remote engineers since 2013. So in that sense, it's, it set us up quite well, but I think we pushed a little bit too hard on making things extremely asynchronous and just a lot of collaboration was left on the ground. We wanted to create an environment that was really conducive to deep thought. So there was a lot of sending around long documents and like really mulling them over and sending around responses and stuff. And it did work in enabling that kind of thought to happen. But a lot of the stuff you need to build a product isn't that. It's coordination, it's context transfer. And we made it so hard to, to do like the basic synchronous parts of building product, the basic synchronous parts of meetings really. <laughs> Uh, it also created a work environment that for some people was, I think, kind of isolating and like, that's just undesirable. So like, I wouldn't, I think I would do that differently now. And then certainly from a technical point of view, I mean, I, I wish I could go back and just give myself all the answers in, in 2013. Not that, not that I necessarily have all the answers now, but I have a heck of a lot more than I did then around how to build this product, how to build it to scale, technologies to use, technologies to avoid, investments to not make, investments we should have made sooner. I mean, the, the list is very long there. Well, Dan, last question. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. They can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? Uh, well, I guess when people, when people who are building new products ask me for advice, one thing I always tell people is that if you're, if you're founding a company, your job is now customer development. Um, like I know you think your job is writing code or building building product. It's not even necessarily that, although those are parts of the job. Your job is customer development. It's figuring out the right thing to build. And you need to get extremely good at that, or you better have a co-founder who's who is extremely good at it. Because, because uh, like I said, I think that's the most likely reason for your product to fail. It will be a significant speed bump to your company if you can't scale the thing you have. Nine times out of 10, you'll just never have a scaling problem because no one uses the dang thing or you don't get the traction you need or you know, you have really weak product market fit and then you have to paper over it for years by really inefficient customer acquisition and all that. That's the number one thing. And then the number two is your job is now also recruiting all the time. Once you have any reason to, to scale the team that you're on, your, your job will become full-time finding the right person to work on the thing with you, getting them excited about what you're doing, communicating the thing that you're doing, get ready to say, the same thing over 200,000 times over the next couple of years uh, because that's it's just what's necessary to get a message out into the world. Both, I guess, beyond recruiting, just for marketing too. I mean, you'll, you'll have to get really clear about what you're trying to do and, and why it solves a problem and why it's valuable and all that. Right on. That's great advice. Well, Dan, thank you for being on Code Story today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Heap. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to chat. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. 
And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.